Well, today we are continuing our series on sleuth. And just like a private eye looks for details, just like what, what Sherlock Holmes said in that last clip, now you're asking the right questions. We've been demonstrating how anyone, whether you're new to the Bible, whether you don't even believe in the Bible yet, or whether you're a veteran to the Bible, how you can study the Bible for application using a Sherlock Holmes-type method called observation. You make observations about a text, just like a crime scene. Interpretation, you figure out the principles that apply to them and to us. And then application. So we're going to do that again today. Today we find ourselves in Pergamos, which is in modern-day Turkey. In the case of the poisonous power. We find ourselves in a passage in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, I know your works, and you dwell where Satan's throne is. And immediately we all get nervous. Oh my goodness, it's spooky stuff. It's the old church lady. Satan made me do it. We're thinking of you know red pe- people in red pajamas and pitchforks. So let me try and help give you a historical perspective on this. And for many people, the idea of God's easy to believe. He's the personification of good. But for some reason, the idea of having a personification of evil is hard to believe. That's really what Satan is. In Jewish and Christian beliefs, he's just a personification of evil. But there's some historic reasons why. In this particular place of Pergamos, in Exhibit A we'll look at, they called this where Satan lived. Let me show you a couple examples. This was a city of power in its day. It was a gigantic mountain, still is today, and I mean gigantic. You don't even get a feel for just how large it is looking at this photograph until you zoom in and begin to see it was a city of power, politics, influence, and had temples to almost every one of the Greek gods. In fact, if you look at it today, you'll see the ruins still remain of one of the largest amphitheaters in the world looking down upon an entire city. There are temple remains still there today, to both Zeus, Dionysus, Demeter, this was the meeting place of the gods. In its day, it looked something like this. Gigantic metropolis on the top of a mountain overlooking the community. You can see about 100 miles from the top of this area. It was a city of power. If you look at that top photograph there we're looking at, you'll see different temples up there. And one of them was a temple to Zeus. Now, To the Jewish people, Zeus was the bizarro version of God, where God revealed himself as a father who was faithful and kind and loving. Zeus, too, was the Greek version of a father, but he was like a deadbeat dad. He slept with anybody and everybody. He had people in and out of wedlock. He wasn't faithful. He had anger issues. He had a revolt with his father. He led a revolt against his father. It was just family dysfunction. So if Superman is the bizarro or good is the evil, for the Jewish mind, Zeus, the father of the Greek gods, was the personification of evil. So they would have called this area in Pergamos where Satan lived because it was where Zeus's temple is, right at the top. In fact, they sold Zeus's temple. It now has been totally reassembled, moved from Turkey to Berlin. And here's what it looks like today. Those are actual people. That is the actual size of the Zeus temple that sat in the top of Pergamos. Which is why the writer, John, through the words of Jesus says, You live where Satan lives. You live in the area of the temple, the bizarro version of the Father God, Zeus himself. And it brings these pieces together. However, in the midst of that kind of religious oppression, you did not deny your faith, they said. However, he goes on to say, I have a few things against you. 
even though you're living in a tough environment, a tough time in history, you hold the doctrine of Balaam. Again, this is where many of us come to the Bible and go, it's just too much work, just too much weird stuff. So I just want to make it real simple. Just occasionally when you come to a Bible, how do you download and figure out some stuff? So you come across a word like Balaam, and we gave out a website called blueletterbible.org. So if you go to blueletterbible.org, you can type in Revelation 2.14, which is where we find ourselves today. You'll notice that a toolbar shows up on the left-hand side. If you click on Tools, one of the tools that comes up is Cross-References. You'll see under the cross-reference, the word Balaam, it says, is back in the Old Testament in Numbers. So it's just click, click. So I don't know what the doctrine of Balaam is. And it says, well, go back and read Numbers 24. Since many of us aren't going to do that, let me tell you the story. Because if you think the Bible's boring, you've missed out if you haven't read the story of Balaam. So here's what happens. We have three people lusting after power in a powerful city way back in the time of Numbers. Balak wants to conquer the Israelites, but he's afraid they have God on their side. In his lust for power, he says, I am going to hire one of their prophets, Balaam, as a mercenary to come and curse them so that they will feel like God's not with them. So Balak calls Balaam aside and says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I'll pay you lots of money if you will curse all your people. I don't know, I like money, but um, no, I can't do that. I can't go all the way and curse everybody. All right, all right, all right, Balaam, how about this? How about if I just get a small group of them together, like the military commanders, and you curse just a little bit of them? If you're not going to go all the way, at least just step over the line. Uh, how much money? No, I don't think I can do that either. Okay, well, tell you what, I'll pay you. If you're not going to curse all of them or a little bit, at least stay neutral. Just don't bless them. All right, let's be neutral about the situation. Well, you know, no, I, I really need to do what God wants. Well, apparently he changes his mind because he's on his donkey. Balaam's on a donkey, and he's on his way, apparently, to go curse the people because his donkey rams him into a wall. <clears throat> he's like, what is wrong with this donkey? But a good donkey goes and <clears throat> rams him against the wall. And he starts hitting the donkey. Wham, wham, wham. The donkey turns and starts talking to him. And he says something like, hee-haw, haven't I been a good donkey? Why are you hitting me? What in the world? And God opens his eyes and shows that there was an angel there that was about to, you know, kill him because he was on his way to curse his people. And again, for many of you, are like, another reason I don't believe in the Bible. you got talking donkeys. This is crazy talk. Well, first of all, isn't the Bible fun? I mean, where do you get this kind of stuff? Let me tell you why I don't have a problem with that. But you might, and that's okay. If the Bible really is what it says it is, a historic account of a supernatural God encountering with history... Isn't it logical that an all-powerful God should be doing all-powerful things? I mean, if you read the Bible and you found out there was nothing supernatural in it, and it claims to be the work of a supernatural God, I'd say, what happened? You know, Why can't this God do anything supernatural? It's actually logical that a supernatural God would do supernatural things. The second thing is there's some Jewish humor going on here. Because if you look at the previous chapter in Numbers, God has commanded Moses to speak to a rock to provide water. But instead he gets mad and he takes a a stick and he hits it. So here we have a Jewish leader who can't speak the way God tells him to. And the next chapter we have a donkey who can speak. Which is sort of a Jewish way of saying even a jack, a donkey can speak and do what God wants, but Moses couldn't. So there's some Jewish humor going on here. There's some philosophical pieces, but that's what's going on. So Balaam turns 
to Barak and says, listen, I'm not going to do it. But I'll tell you a way you can get God to curse the people for you. That group of people are really given in to lust. Hire some prostitutes from Moab, have them go down, and they'll end up cheating on their wives and sleeping around, and God will curse them for you. That's exactly what happens in Numbers. They not only have this giant orgy, they have it in the sanctuary called the tabernacle all night long. And God, sure enough, curses them for it. All that is what you would read if you were in Numbers, which is what he's referring to here. Now, why is that important in Pergamos? Well, there was a temple there to the temple of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. Dionysus would change water into wine, was how the legend went. And then you would take the wine and you and everyone in the town of Pergamos would get drunk to high heavens. You would then, at the end of that, you could walk to an area where you could be washed. You would actually step in this area and they would dump blood over you because that's how you'd be washed or cleansed in the Greek culture. Once you were washed and you had drunk a lot, you would actually head up to the theater. Greek theater was actually developed. The first Greek play ever was based on the Temple of Dionysus. This is actually the theater. If you look at the bottom right corner, that's the Temple of Dionysus. You would walk directly past the the amphitheater there. And right around the corner at the top, you would actually end up in a banquet hall. And many of the Christians, apparently in those days, were engaging in this type of Greek banquet. You'd end up in this banquet hall, which was, again, a very immoral, all-night-long drunken orgy with men, women, and children. And now you can see why Jesus says what was happening back with Balaam in Numbers is what's going on here. You guys are engaging in things that do not model purity or faithfulness or commitment or the God you say you follow. And that is why Balaam is such a key word here, because it connects Pergamos to the Old Testament and to what's going on historically. All right, third piece. He says, now, many of you are giving in to this culture and adapting yourself to the culture, but if you will overcome, if you'll pursue something different, I will give you a white stone and a new name. Now, this is really cool that God would say this here in Pergamos, that I will give you a new name and a white stone. Why is that so important? Well, look at a couple of photographs at the bottom of the hill in Pergamos are these photographs. I'll put them all three up on the screen. What do you notice in common? This is at an ancient hospital of the god Asclepius. And what do you notice in all three photographs? This was a medical center where you could be healed, cleansed. People would go there to get healing. Well, let me remove the background. What is in common? White stones. These weren't just any white stones. This was walking into the business or walking into the hospital. There were white stones that talked about who had been healed and they had names on them. Just as what Jesus is referring to. Now, if you've ever been to a medical center or you're a nurse or a doctor or a surgeon, you've probably seen the medical symbol with a staff with a snake going around it. That is the sign of Asclepius. It comes right here from Pergamos. But Asclepius didn't come up with it. He copied it off of the Jewish story from Moses. Moses has a staff, has a snake on it, and asked the people to admit that their snake bites came from their complaining and disobedience, and only God could heal them. The Greeks copy off of that. I covered this in our series, Clash of the Titans. I won't belabor it here. But the idea of this hospital and Asclepius and modern-day medicine symbols come directly from this area of Pergamos. In fact... Here's what Asclepius looks like. He's a grandfatherly figure. He has a staff with a snake on it. 
modern-day medicine from Pergamos. Now, if you walked into the hospital, what you would find there is that there are stones that line up the different hospital beds. And they would have a foot on it or an eye on it with a name. It would say, Chad, he had his foot healed here. Next one would be Paul. He had his eye healed here. This is like marketing 101 back in the day. You came in, look at all the success stories. You can be one of those. And Jesus says, you live in a town when people get white stones and get their names on it. But if you will stay true to what I'm telling you, I've got a white stone in heaven with your name on it that will not fall apart over time. It will not crumble. I will brag on you and reward you forever with a white stone of reward that will never pass away. And that's just three words in that passage. So what we've been doing in this series is saying there are ways in which you can make observations. We've given you some tools. One book we recommended by Skip Heitzig is called How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It. It helps with these kind of interpretations. We talked about having a New King James Study Bible. At the bottom of the book are these kind of notes and references to help dig into the history of the text. There's also another book that we make available called Fast Track Bible, and this is a way to read the entire Bible in 90 minutes to understand how it all fits together. So those are all available if you want to make some observations. Now we're going to move to interpretation. Interpretation is where we try and figure out, okay, that's what it meant for them in their town. What does it mean for our town? What is the principle that applied then that also applies now? So let me pull the text up, and I'm going to show you what I got the principle out of, and then we're going to finally get practical. So here's what it says in the passage. Next slide. Next slide. You dwell where Satan's throne is, the home of Zeus, and you hold fast to my name, but you didn't deny my faith. They're actually staying strong. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. You're not being faithful to your spouses and to the idea of commitment in your, in your uh, sexual ethics. But to him who overcomes these temptations, I'm going to give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name will be written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So my principle here for interpretation that applied to them there and to us now is don't compromise in a city of power because God will give a reward to those who overcome the temptations of lust, power, and greed. And now we move into application. So again, for most of you who haven't been part of this series, this is how a typical sermon would start. Today we're talking about the case of the poisonous power. Power, in its many forms, and lust after power, has a tendency to affect folks. Haven't you gotten a job or had a colleague get a job, and the whole time they complained about the supervisor, right? How he was using his power and not doing the right thing. And you said, or they said, when I'm in charge, I'll do the right thing. And then they got in charge. And they realized if they made that decision, they would maybe lose some perks or lose some influence. And so they were so scared of losing their power, they didn't do the things that got them their power. And they became ineffective. Or think about with your kids. They're playing on select soccer league. You got the guy who's the, the star forward. I played soccer as well. We had a kid just like this on my team. He dribbled great, but he always wanted to be the glory hog and, and kick the ball in because he wanted to be celebrated. So it was always easy to pass. We could, right now you could get an assist, but he didn't want the assist. He, he so wanted the glory of the power of being rewarded that he just would get the ball taken away from him and away from him and away from him because it was all about himself. In his lust for power, he didn't do what was best for the team. 
how many marriages become a power struggle, right? Withholding affection, playing games, manipulating lies. It's all about who has power or dominance. And that power struggle begins to wear and tear people apart. Think about politics. How many people promise certain things in politics and then they get into power? And it's like, what happened? What happened to your integrity? What happened to those decisions? What happened to those principles? That's what was happening in this city of power. You see, what happened is, the principle is, we often compromise to keep our power. Oh, no, I can't do that here. I can't do the right thing here. Because if I did the right thing here, I'd lose my influence and power. So we compromise to keep our power. But see, God gave you your power so you would not compromise. We compromise to keep our power, political power, relational power, business power. We start compromising because we're so scared of losing our power. When God put us in our place, God put us in this sphere of influence so that we would not compromise. And it's that insecurity of losing our power that keeps us from being the leaders that we really want to be. That insecurity of losing our power drives us to make bad decisions. The father of modern advertising, David Ogilvy, had a great quote about this. He said, I admire people who hire subordinates who are good enough to succeed them. I pity people who are so insecure that they feel compelled to hire inferiors as their subordinates. That's somebody who's scared of losing their power. They don't want to hire people that are better than them to make the whole organization better. So they make compromises in their hiring decisions to keep their power. Instead of saying, I've been put in this position of power, so I won't compromise, so I can hire the best folks. Chick-fil-A, Pat, William, um, not Pat, yeah, Pat Williams from the Orlando Magic was interviewing uh, Ross Caffey, grandson of Truett Caffey. He said, what's been the success of the growth of Chick-fil-A? He said, my grandfather was never about keeping power. He was always about delegating power and giving it away and empowering people that the organization became more important than he was. And that's how we've grown. Here in Pergamos, we have five temptations, five T's that the people walk through to compromise their power. The first T is what I'm going to call tolerating stumbling blocks. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Barak to put a stumbling block before your children. Now, what is a stumbling block? A stumbling block is often something that it's not necessarily wrong. It's just something you stumble off of. It's something that could cause you to do something wrong. There's lots of them. In the story of Balaam, you had one group of people who struggled with lust. So there's nothing wrong with a computer, but having your computer on in a private room at night might be a stumbling block. It's just access. You might have tendencies in your family toward gambling or toward alcohol. Even if you don't give in to it, you drive past the bar rather than taking a different way home. It's a stumbling block. You find yourself, if you struggle with gossip, when you're bored, you walk into the workroom. And you know what's going to happen in the workroom, because that's what always happens in the workroom. But you find yourself coming across the stumbling block. And just like Barak did to Balaam, you say, well, I didn't go all the way. He says, well, okay, if you're not going to go all the way, could you at least just step over the line? And your stumbling block isn't that you went all the way with gossip or lust or greed. You just went over the line a little bit. All right, well, that didn't hurt too bad. And that became a stumbling block. Or instead, you compromise your power. Instead of doing the right thing, like 
Balak said to Balaam, just be neutral. Just stay out of the situation. And you didn't stand up for somebody. You didn't give credit to somebody who deserved it. You decided to stay neutral. What happens is when you begin to tolerate stumbling blocks in your life, they're not a problem yet, but you know they will be. That toleration becomes a temptation. But it starts off with toleration before it's temptation. I was reading a quote from a guy from Watergate. He talked about how they tolerated things until it became terminal. We had conned ourselves into thinking that we weren't doing anything wrong. And by the time we were doing things that were illegal, we lost control. We'd gone from poor ethical decisions into illegal activities without even realizing it. And that's what happens. You don't intend to end up there. You just tolerated things that eventually led you there. And that's the first step. The second step is those stumbling blocks begin to teach us. We tolerate and then we're taught. He says, I have a few things against you. Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before them. See, Balaam said, I'm not going to be involved, but hire prostitutes. Send them there. They'll take care of it. Now, here's what that principle is for us. When temptation comes our way, we should be talking to temptation. That might sound weird, but you talk to temptation. You say, no, that's wrong. That's a lie. No, it will hurt me. No, it will have consequences. That's when you're teaching temptation. But when you find yourself tolerating, the temptation starts to teach you. I wrote down a few things that temptation sounds like when it teaches me. It says, Chad, you deserve to be treated better. It begins to teach me. Chad, it's really not a big deal. You're just stepping over the line. Chad, you're not going to hurt anyone. Chad, that, that principle, that situation, it doesn't apply to you. And you see how temptation is starting to teach me? Trying to educate me? Try to woo me into temptation? I had a friend of mine who uh, had a very successful business and through a cocaine addiction after I had performed the ceremony between he and his wife, we didn't know he had this addiction. It came out in that first year, and he ended up selling every piece of equipment in his company, landscaping company, to feed his cocaine addiction. We had an intervention. I remember sitting in his office, and he just hadn't eaten forever because of the cocaine. And he and his sister and his wife, just we had in tears together, we were just begging him, begging him to stop listening to the lies and, and to walk a different path. And he did. Incredible story. He went into a, a, a drug rehabilitation center for about four months. And then it was time, his, his wife was coming to a Bible study for the first time. She didn't believe in the Bible, but she came and found a God of forgiveness and power during that time. Her, wife, her husband was in, uh, in rehab. He then came to a point, he graduated the program, he was going to move back home. And as I was talking to him, he says, I can't come home yet. I said, why? He said, because even if I'm not going to do drugs yet, when I drive down certain roads, I have a pre-high. Because I remember driving down that road on my way to getting high. And I get a pre-high on my way to getting high. He said, those are going to be stumbling blocks. I'm not ready yet. And he had to slowly walk himself and see his weaknesses. He said, temptation's still teaching me. It's still too strong. I've been doing this since I was 13. I need longer to learn how to talk to my temptations instead of allowing my temptations to talk to me. So we tolerate. We're taught. And then I think this is where I find myself getting in trouble. I tiptoe into unwise circumstances. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's not, it's not wrong. It's just unwise. 
And so we tell ourselves, well, it's not wrong. And we find ourselves tiptoeing, just tiptoeing into unwise circumstances. And this phrase used here in Revelation is important. It says, you've been eating things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, there's a difference in another book written by Paul. It talks about food that is offered to idols. When you came into a marketplace, you would offer your sacrifice saying, hey, this is Zeus's temple. If I'm going to be selling stuff here, I'm doing it on behalf of Zeus. And Paul said, listen, Zeus isn't really anybody. You can offer it and saying, yes, I'm here doing business as a Christian or as a Jewish person in the marketplace. He said, so it's offered to idols. It's okay, but don't use food that's sacrificed to idols. What's the difference? Well, to be offered to us, an idol was done in the marketplace. When it was sacrificed to an idol, you actually came into a back room where the gods were, and it was basically a sexual orgy that went on. So he said, listen, don't go there. Well, I'll be fine. I'm strong. I won't give in to it. Right. He said, stay away from unwise circumstances. Don't go in there where they sacrifice to idols. You can offer to idols outside where everybody's around, but don't go into the land where they, the room where they sacrifice to idols. I think for many of us, we need to say, what are the unwise things that I find myself tiptoeing into? For me, I have lunch with people of the opposite sex, but rarely. Because I want to feel very nervous when I'm even having lunch with somebody of the opposite sex. Because I want to get nervous then, long before the other stages of of attraction. That's just me. And that's maybe an overreaction, but for me, I, I don't want to put myself in an unwise situation. For some of us, we've been texting or we've been Facebooking with an old friend. Facebook's one of the number one causes of divorce today. And you find yourself in the middle of a conversation and you find yourself just connecting with old emotions and and old passions. Or this person just happens to be a better communicator than your spouse. And and you begin to tiptoe into an emotional affair, into an unwise circumstance. We all do it. And the whole time we tell ourselves, well, it's not wrong to have lunch. It's not wrong to be on Facebook. We start off with our expenses and we say, well, this one probably counts. Well, this one probably counts. Well, this one is vital and pretty soon everything's vital and then we begin to fudge everything. We tiptoed into things that were unwise. We get angry and we justify our temper instead of apologizing and pretty soon soon everything's a reason for us to get mad. We tiptoe into unwise circumstances. I tell my son, I just had several teenage guys together recently and I said, Guys, you should not have electronics in your room at night. Why is that? I like to listen to it. I said, listen, it doesn't matter who you are as a guy to be alone at night with electronics when you're tired and alone. That is just a a recipe for for temptation. That's just unwise. So one of the things we have, my son, for example, has to lock up his his, uh, phone or electronics at night. Because I'm like, buddy, I'm not saying anything wrong with you or me. I'm just saying there's something wrong with all of us, guys. And I don't want to put you or put me in an unwise circumstance because I'm susceptible. And you are too. So let's, let's be wise about this. Nothing wrong with having a phone in your room. It's just not wise at night. Whether it's bullying that goes on or whether it's temptation that goes on. So, for the alcoholic, it's unwise to be near a pub. For the coveter, you might not want to open up the catalog. If you're a man, you might not want to have electronics accessible to you at night. If it's gossip, you may want to stay away from the workroom. Whatever it is, figure out your unique, unwise circumstances like they had. The next thing they did, stage four, is they began to tell their mind that God won't mind. 
Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Now we learned two weeks ago that Nicolaitans comes from three words. It's a coded word that means Nike to dominate the tan polis people, to dominate the people. So God does not like a dominating attitude. And we begin to say, well, God wants me to dominate because that's what leaders do. That's how you're supposed to parent. And we begin to tell God, we tell our mind that God won't mind our belligerence or our arrogance. But he does mind. In fact, this is Jesus speaking. He hates that kind of attitude. But the Nicolaitans also said that when you came to make a vow, you could sort of cross your fingers and say, well, I don't really mean this. And God would forgive you. Their word didn't mean anything. Their integrity didn't mean anything. That's what happens when you tiptoe into temptation. You get to the place where you start saying, well, God won't mind this. He doesn't care what I do with my body. He doesn't care what I, what I do at business. He only cares if I go to church and ask forgiveness. As long as I put in a check, it doesn't matter what I do the rest of my life. I said, no, you're missing out. I care about everything. I want you to live the abundant life every moment of every day. You've bought into a lie of Balaam, of Pergamos. You're tiptoeing your way and you think it's going to lead to pleasure in life. It's going to lead to destruction. And so I'm begging you, come back and stop telling yourself. Stop telling your mind that I don't mind. I do mind. Not because I'm mad, but because I love you. And that is not going to lead to what you think it's going to lead to. Come back. There's forgiveness. Come back. There's grace. But more than that, there's some leadership. I can say, well, don't go down that paint. Don't go down there. That's not good. In fact, the uh, guy that the movie The Wolf on Wall Street was inspired by talked about he began to tell himself, probably not that God wouldn't mind, but that the SEC wouldn't mind, that integrity wouldn't mind, that the American government wouldn't mind. Look what he said. I offer to you, and I offer it to you in a voice that was playing inside my head at the time. It's an ironic voice, a glib voice, a self-serving voice, and at many times a despicable voice. It's a voice that allowed me to rationalize anything that stood in the way of living a life of unbridled hedonism. It's a voice that helped me corrupt other people, manipulate them, and bring chaos and insanity to an entire generation of young Americans. And yet many watched the movie and went, wow, I'd like to be like the wolf on Wall Street. My daughter's in college. They had a a group came to do a college demonstration. They said, we're just like the wolf on Wall Street. Only with less drugs. And the kid's like, oh, I want to work there. When even the guy the story's based on said, no, this is a tragic tale of what happens when you start telling your mind that God won't mind. But there's a reward for those who choose to overcome. Who choose to look at these stages and think, wow, I'm on stage two. Ooh, wow, I'm starting to fiddle with stage three. See, the fifth stage of compromise is that you begin to trade now for later. And compromise is always about that. You trade now. Oh, I get a little pleasure now. I get to gossip about somebody now. I get to lose my temper now and feel that adrenaline rush. There's a benefit now, but I lose the later. The benefits of a commitment of a long-term marriage. The benefits of a relationship where I forgive and I humble my pride. I always sacrifice now for later. And Jesus says, hey, if you want a white stone down at the bottom of the mountain that's one day going to crumble and people are going to come by and see it and it's going to sort of, I guess I see their name in there, you can have that. You can have people clap for you now, cheer for you now. Wow, look at your power. Or you can do what's right and I'm going to give you a reward later that is far better. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a white stone that is permanent. I'm going to reward you with something that rust cannot 
destroy, that moth cannot eat. I have a reward that's better than a trophy. It is a personal relationship that you and I, when I present this reward to you, this white stone to you with your name on it, it's a reminder of those days that you said, oh, I was so close to giving in, but I chose to be faithful. I was so close to temptation, but I said, God, I'm going to trust your ways better. It doesn't feel better right now. And I'm going to wrap my arms around you. And I'm going to say, I saw those moments of integrity. And I'm going to reward you. And that reward is going to be so high, you're going to say, I'm so glad I waited for the bigger reward. Because it's personal. I got this reward last March. I spoke at a mayor's prayer event in St. Louis. And they gave me this award. It's got my name on it. It's about how God's trying to bring his message to the world. Sits in my cubicle. But that's not why it's important to me. It's important to me because something personal happened on that trip. My wife never speaks publicly. In fact, it's terrorizing to her to even think about it. But they asked if I was going to speak, if my wife would come and share our story about adopting Quinn and the challenges of it. So I joked with Beth that that was the beginning of her speaking career. In fact, we didn't prepare in advance because I knew talking about it would cause her grief. So we actually didn't talk about it at all until we delivered it. And it was like a TED Talk expert put together talk. And my wife did most of it. And I went, honey, that was amazing. And it was so meaningful to me that that reward is always going to remind me where Beth and I got to go up in front of a group of parents of special needs and just share our journey, our struggles, our tears, our moments. So when I see this reward, it's so personal because it's about my relationship with my wife and how God used our story, a story we're still in the middle of, a story that we got a new chapter of. We found out Quinn was diagnosed with mental retardation last week, another chapter of it. But that God is using our perseverance, our love, our day-by-day trust of Him. And one day He's going to have a white stone for us. And it's going to be far bigger and better than this. And it's going to be God wrapping His arms around us and saying, I saw your tears. I saw the perseverance. I saw the challenges. And I long for the words when He hands me my white stone with my name and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. There's nothing wrong with wanting a reward. You can have a little reward now, a little pleasure now, a little gossip now, a little anger now, a little power hungry now, or you can have a big reward later. But often we compromise all those stages to keep our power. When God gave us our position of power so we wouldn't compromise. So the band comes up, I want to just ask yourself, be honest with yourself, be ruthlessly honest with yourself. We all compromise. Where are you? Which one of these questions do you find yourself struggling with this morning? Are you tolerating stumbling blocks? And as I talked about it, you went, oh, yes, I am. It's that relationship. It's that friendship. It's that Facebook connection. It's that tendency to walk into the gossip and and begin the conversations. You know where they're going to go. Are you tolerating stumbling blocks? Are Are you hearing the voice of temptation whisper your name? You deserve better. You shouldn't be treated like this. You don't deserve, you deserve somebody who will, who, who will encourage you more or listen to you better. And because of that, are you tiptoeing into unwise environments and all your friends are saying, whoa, not a good idea. Oh, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And the whole time you're saying, well, Jesus loves me. This I know. I tell my mind that God won't mind. 
and you're choosing to trade now for later. During this next song, I want you to ask yourself, God, where do you want me to stand? Stand strong. To ask for forgiveness. To come back and find that you are the one that can give me the strength I need to overcome the compromises I'm being tempted by. You know, my problem is not I need more willpower to be able to stand. My problem is my willpower runs out. I need access to somebody else's willpower. When you read the story of Jesus, and whether you believe it or not, I encourage you to read it, because you see Jesus is able to stand against temptations that other people fell into. He comes face to face with the personification of evil, known as Satan, and he beats him. He stands. He's on a cross. He could have come down at any time. He had the power to, but he stood there, and he stood the test because he loved us. He tells his father, you know, not my will, but yours be done. This is a guy who knows how to stand. He's got conviction and power. And if you need, not just to say, well, I'm going to try harder. You need someone living in you who knows how to stand. He's got a track record. And wherever you are in your journey, his arms are open wide and say, hey, I know you don't have what it takes. I do. Let me come live in you. And I've got a trophy for you with your name on it. So I just lead you into prayer. If you want to bow your heads with me, maybe you just want to confess that God... I am compromising. Maybe I tell him where. Maybe if it applies to you, say, God, I'm compromising just to keep my power. That's what's my driver. Forgive me. I need your staying power. I need your willpower. I need your conviction. I invite you to come and take over the controls of my heart, my eyes, my hands, and my mouth. I want to start trusting you. Jesus, I ask you to teach me instead of temptation teaching me. Father, we just thank you for each person here, whatever journey we're on, whatever compromise we've made. We're just so thankful, God, that there's always a place we can come to, that we're always welcome in your arms, that you will help us no matter how messed up we become, no matter what mistakes we've made. You'll work with us where we are to lead us where we could be because you love us that deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. We're going to take one week off of our Sleuth series next week because Dr. Green is going to be with us. If you don't know the story of Dr. Green, he gave us a little teaser of it about six months ago. He was the last person to be with Saddam Hussein the night before he died. So he is going to describe what it was like to be in a room with Saddam Hussein and what that was like and the questions he asked and the things he learned. So that is next weekend, all four services. Dr. Green will be with us sharing his story of what it's like to be with Saddam Hussein for an evening of asking questions. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on your way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'll see you all next week. Thanks again.